Coming up, the imminent threat of autonomous killer robots. I think it takes us into a world in which nobody wants to live. And just like Star Wars, lasers become effective weapons. You can't see the laser beams, uh, you can't hear them. It's hard to know that anything is going on a lot of the time. Plus, what's wrong with how we measure temperature? And what is temperature anyway? This is The Nature Podcast for May the 28th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Last week, Adam went on a bit of an excursion to an 18th century country manor in Buckinghamshire, just north of London, where a group of scientists were meeting to talk about temperature. Hanging above the grand staircase at Chichley Hall in Buckinghamshire, there's a very stern-looking portrait of Lord Kelvin. In the mid-1800s, Lord Kelvin called for a new temperature scale, which would recognise that there was a coldest possible temperature, absolute zero. It's appropriate that his portrait is staring at me, because in the next-door room, about 50 scientists are getting hot under the collar about temperature all over again. Michael de Podesta from the UK's National Physical Laboratory is one of them. We're deciding what we mean by one degree and the process by which that gets translated into practical reality. And there I was, thinking I knew what a degree was. Why do physicists want to change the system? I asked conference organiser Graham Matchin, also from NPL, what was wrong with the old way of defining temperature. So we want to move to a system where we're based on fundamental physical constants which are constant for all time, so we have a unified physical basis for the units. This unified physical basis would really firm up the fundamental units of measurement. There are just seven of them, including the metre and the kilogram, and together they're known as the International System Base Units, or SI units. Absolutely any measurements of the world around us can be described using just these seven units. The, the SI as a whole is one of humanity's great achievements. The SI units are now being redefined so they're based on more fundamental ideas. For example, the metre is now defined relative to the speed of light. It used to be defined relative to a special metal bar in France. And temperature will be defined relative to the Boltzmann constant, another fundamental physical constant. Seems sensible, but it made me wonder, how are the units of the old Kelvin defined? What's the current system? I asked Michael de Podesta. We use a beautiful device, it's the holy of holies of thermometry, called a triple point of water cell. The triple point of water is the only point at which liquid water, ice and water vapour can all coexist. These cells are long glass vials about 30 centimetres long a bit like a giant test tube. And we chill it and we create a condition where the ice, the liquid water and water vapour coexist together. And after this has settled down and it's reached equilibrium, the temperature inside becomes 273.16 Kelvin. So the triple point of water always occurs at precisely the same temperature, which we label as 273.16 Kelvin. Along with absolute zero, this provides the two landmarks we need to calibrate the whole Kelvin scale. Every other temperature in the world, whether it's at 1,000 degrees Celsius or 0.1 degree above absolute zero, is actually a comparison to the, this condition created inside these cells. The new Kelvin will do away with this rather convoluted definition. 
Instead, it would define what a degree means using the Boltzmann constant, which links the temperature of a substance to the energy of individual particles in that substance. Everyone at the meeting seemed to agree that this was a more sensible way to define the Kelvin. So how close were we to seeing this new definition put into practice? I asked Graham. I personally think that we can redefine the unit uh, in 2018, and hopefully that will cause no difficulty for anyone, I think. So far we've been talking about the scale, but what is the scale of? Degrees let us measure temperature, but don't tell us what temperature actually means. We now know temperature is related to the movements of the atoms in a substance. But Kelvin, when he died in 1907, still had his doubts about whether atoms even existed. We're now pretty sure about atoms, and have a solid understanding of what temperature actually means. Or, so I thought until I spoke to Peter Hanke of the University of Augsburg. And as a matter of fact, now recent studies show that it's not such a simple concept, because the temperature can mean different things, and one has to show either they are equivalent, or one has to show why they are not equivalent. Scientists have been thinking about temperature for ages, though. How is it that we still need to clarify what we mean by it? Around the turn of the last century, you know, 1890 until 1920 or so on, this was a very hot topic. Then, in the 1920s, quantum mechanics and general relativity distracted everyone from asking these kinds of questions about temperature. Only now we enter the world again of the nanophysics and then we have to really double-check what these masters have told us about thermodynamics, and they were usually thinking not of this new situation. So we need a reinvestigation of all the basic principles. But how complicated can temperature really be? After all, we feel hot when it's hot, right? Sensation is not temperature. Sensation has to do with biology, with signaling in your brain. And typically, something feeling hot or something feeling cold has more to do with how fast heat is transported. You think temperature is something easy, simple to understand, right? But if you dig deep enough, it comes to really the foundations of where we do science. And that's actually an interesting aspect, isn't it? Mm. We'll need to wait a few more years before the Kelvin is revamped, and Peter might be waiting even longer for answers to his questions. I was relieved to find out, though, that some people at the meeting were much more practically minded. I spoke with scientists who are developing new thermometers capable of measuring incredibly hot, as well as brain-numbingly cold, temperatures. Michael de Podesto was also keen to show off his new temperature measurements. Well, we think they're the most accurate temperature measurements in human history. We're talking about thousandths of a degree, fractions of a thousandth of a degree. I'm deliriously happy. <laughs> but what actually motivates Michael to measure temperature so mind-bogglingly accurately? Suppose I had a lens and I, would, I told you what I was doing was I was polishing it so I could get a sharper image. No one would even question, they'd say, it's obvious why you're doing that because you don't know what you're going to see until you have made it and then you reveal new detail, new, new nuances. Well, actually, all physical measurements are like that. So when you learn to measure the temperature properly, instead of things appearing blurry, you see fine distinctions. So it's like we're sharpening a, a kind of thermal lens of what could possibly be seen in the world. But what's it like to work on measuring and understanding temperature? After all, we use it every single day without giving it a second thought. I'm fortunate enough to, to work in something that I love doing. 
you know, it doesn't matter to everybody, but probably we worry about this stuff so other people don't have to. There's one person, though, who would have been very interested in the day's proceedings. I asked Graham Matchin what he thought Lord Kelvin himself would have thought of the day's discussions. I think he would really enjoy uh, seeing really some of the fruit of what he had actually set in train by the things and the ideas that he had had all those years ago. That was Michael de Podesta, and before him, Graham Matchin and Peter Hankey. The conference called Towards Implementing the New Kelvin was organised by the Royal Society. For more information on the meeting, go to royalsociety.org and search for New Kelvin. Thinking of Star Wars? Yeah, me too. I'm picturing the Millennium Falcon zapping its enemies to smithereens with powerful laser cannons. Well, laser weapons are not a fantasy anymore. Several have been prototyped in the past few years. Ever since lasers were first demonstrated in the 1960s, people have imagined making weapons out of them, firing powerful bursts of directed energy and blowing up targets. It's been a surprisingly long process, though, getting them to work, as I heard when I spoke to science journalist Andy Extance. He's been researching laser weapons for a feature. I asked him the obvious question first. Are we getting close to living in Star Wars? It's very, very far from Star Wars in all kinds of ways. The one that I guess perhaps disappointed me the most is the fact that there's no pew 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 kind of noise going on. You can't see the laser beams, uh, you can't hear them. It's hard to know that anything is going on a lot of the time. The field of laser weapons has been rumbling along for decades, really. But the most recent thing that happened is that last year the US Navy actually put one of these laser weapons on a ship. Yeah, that laser weapon is, is there. It's on the USS Ponche, which is out in the Persian Gulf. Theoretically, it's there to be used in anger, but I suspect they're pro probably just using it on testing. And yeah, they've used it to test it on various projectiles. I think that's one of the, the key points in terms of the difference from Star Wars is that they mainly target very small things like mortar, rocket, artillery shells that are going to be attacking you. And you can use the laser as a kind of defensive weapon to blow up those incoming threats and also um, against things like pirate boats to disable them from a distance and drones. You don't have to wait for a projectile to get from one place to the other. You can do it at the speed of light. It's the equivalent of holding a blowtorch up. And so you're, you're heating it up. So if it's a mortar shell, you can effectively hold a blowtorch up to the weakest point such that it explodes. What's the history then of using lasers as weapons? From the 80s into the early 2000s, the main focus was on very high power lasers. And they were very large and they had to be carried on Boeing 747 type aircraft. The aim there was that they would be trying to blow up nuclear weapons in flight. But the kind of lasers they were using, it generates the laser energy through a chemical reaction. And that requires the airplane to carry fuel and it could probably only carry enough fuel for about 10 shots or something like that 10 or 20 shots what's happened with that's brought about the the modern lasers is a type of laser that's developed through the 1990s and in into modern times called the fiber laser so a fiber laser uh, works by first converting electricity to laser light using lots of laser diodes which are high power versions of what you might find in a CD player. 
that light is then channeled into a long, thin, spaghetti-like optical fibre. And in that fibre, the light from the diodes is amplified to even higher powers. It's enough to blow up small targets, like I was talking about with the uh, mortar shells, um, artillery shells, and small vehicles. So really, I suppose what's enabled them to commercialise these things and, and make them and put them on at least one ship that we know of, is the fact that they're just aiming at different things. They don't need this giant amount of power. They're not trying to take out nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's been a, it's been a, a change of expectation. Um, it's kind of the fact that these fibre lasers, they haven't been developed specifically for using in weapons. Are they meant for defensive use or is that at least the, the line that people were giving you? That is exactly what people are saying. There was a story from... Uh, Paul Shattuck from Lockheed Martin that's in the feature where he talks about hearing the mayor of a, of a town in Israel where they were being attacked by rockets from the Gaza Strip and they were asking for some kind of defence. And Lockheed Martin thought, well, we could use a kilowatt power la- laser, a 10 kilowatt power laser as a defence to help people who are being attacked by by rockets. How do they do in, in tests, in practical tests? Because it seems to me like if you had a giant cloud or something, you couldn't necessarily bank on your laser making it through. That's a current concern is the fact that weather can be a real killer for these things. If you, As one of the, my interviewees said, if you can't see the target, you can't destroy it. So if you've got fog, if you've got rain, that's not so great. But the point that other interviewees make is this isn't supposed to be a, you know, a be all and end all solution. It's something you use when you have the opportunity. The major advantage is that you only need a little bit of electricity in in order to run it. And that electricity costs something like $10 a shot. Whereas to fire a rocket or a missile, it can cost much more. Uh, uh, One of my interviews said a cheap, cheap missile is is about $100,000. Some people are speculating that with systems like this that are cheap, easy to control, can be actually quite autonomous, that there are sort of ethical issues with deploying them and that and that they might sort of try, you know, somehow make their own decisions. Are those things that people are worrying about? The interesting point that you raise about being able to fire before you, you know what's happened is it, that's, that's down to the fact that it's silent, it's invisible, and the systems can use autonomous targeting. And if the operator isn't paying attention, they might miss it. That's been shown up as a a potential problem in some of the Boeing tests. And so what they've said is they're actually going to overlay some sound effects like Star Trek and Star Wars sound effects on top of what the computer's doing to make the operator aware that, that something is happening. So not as far from Star Wars as it might appear. Pew, pew, pew. That was science journalist Andy Extens. His feature is available free to read at nature.com slash news. And while you're there, check out another feature this week on Clever Fish. It includes a video which shows fish teaming up on a hunt and a pretty unconvincing fake eel. Coming up, more terrifying news in the form of killer robots. But first, for a break from this week's inadvertent sci-fi weapons theme, it's time for the research highlights with Sharmini Bandel. Scientists have found bubbles of air that are one million years old. It's the oldest air ever studied. It was found trapped in ancient blue ice in Antarctica and includes methane and carbon dioxide. 
the ice bubbles extend our record of the Antarctic atmosphere back an extra 200,000 years. They also confirm that even a million years ago, there was already evidence for a strong link between carbon dioxide concentrations and Antarctic temperature. The full paper is in PNAS. Crafty crows hide their tools for future use. It's been known for some time that New Caledonian crows can turn sticks into hooks and use them to snag hard-to-reach food. But making these tools takes time and effort. New research shows that the crows save energy by storing the tool while eating, trapping it underfoot or storing it in a hole. The crows were extra careful to keep their hooks safe when they were high up, as it would be more of a nuisance to get the tool back if dropped. Not exactly bird-brained. For more information, see the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Hey Siri, what's your favourite colour? My favourite colour is, well, I don't know how to say it in your language. It's sort of greenish, but with more dimensions. Artificial intelligence is already, well, pretty intelligent. You just heard the voice of Siri on my smartphone, and she also sets my alarm for me every day. Many everyday tasks are now automated and taken care of by artificially intelligent algorithms. But, as with any technological advance, there can be downsides. We've seen this happen with atomic research and nuclear weapons, for instance. Some researchers worry that artificial intelligence could replace humans in the job market, or that our intelligent creations could even one day rebel against us. Current AI systems aren't that clever, but there are already autonomous robots doing things that us humans should worry about. That's what Stuart Russell thinks anyway. He's an AI expert at the University of California, Berkeley. Stuart's concerned about the threat of killer robots. These automated machines have already joined the ranks of several armies around the world. They can make their own decisions about whether or not to pull the trigger. The UN has held meetings to discuss whether this technology should be banned. Stuart has been heavily involved in these meetings, and reporter Emily Bannum gave him a call to chat about killer bots. In the last five years or so, I've become somewhat more concerned about it because progress has been very rapid, and it's a very easy step to go from remotely piloted drones to fully autonomous weapons. And it seemed to me that that step was going to happen very soon. The AI community may be too late we might decide that we don't like the idea of, of our technology being used to kill people, but we may not have a say in it. As things stand, what are these automated weapons already capable of? At the moment, there are just a few weapons that would qualify as autonomous. One is the, uh, the sentry robot that's used in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And that's a stationary robot equipped with machine guns that can uh, kill people, I think it's up to two miles away. So if they detect a moving object in the demilitarized zone and they're, they're operating in autonomous mode, they would be able to just kill that person. Israel has a loitering weapon, a missile that can stay in the air for a long time, wander around an area whenever it detects a certain kind of radar signal, it will home in on that radar signal and destroy it. So nominally, that's an autonomous weapon that seeks and destroys anti-aircraft installations. But of course, if someone decides to put a radar signal in a preschool, then it'll destroy the preschool. And these weapons make the decision themselves whether or not to kill a combatant? Yes. I think we always have to be careful when we say to, to kill a combatant. 
that assumes that the system knows that that's a competent. It may think it's a competent, but of course it may not be a competent, maybe just a, a person on their way to a wedding. This confusion between what what the software is intended to do and what it actually does occurs a lot. Usually these systems have fairly limited discrimination ability. What they actually destroy is whatever passes their internal test for a target. How do you see all this changing modern warfare? So we might fairly soon see systems that fly around in a town, go inside buildings, find people they think we don't like or, or whoever owns the drone doesn't like, um, and then kill them. Warfare will just be something that leaves human beings completely defenseless. And people will no doubt use them against their own populations. I mean, when uh, when Assad wanted to uh, put down the rebellion in Homs, uh, he had to send hundreds of tanks and thousands of soldiers, uh, and it took him a long time and a lot of money. And uh, now it would be cheap and quick and completely clinical. But I think it takes us into a world in which nobody wants to live. This field isn't going ahead completely unwatched and ungoverned, is it? I mean, people are discussing what to do about autonomous weapons. There is a very serious process going on in Geneva. So the United Nations has a, a standing conference on disarmament, and one part of that is the conference on uh, certain conventional weapons, or CCW. There have been three meetings so far. They are discussing whether there should be a ban, and if so, um, how do we define the class of weapons that's being banned? The real issue is whether the main countries who are developing these weapons, which is the U.S. and the U.K. and Israel, are willing to enter into serious discussions about a treaty. Are you optimistic that these the international meetings going on now could reach an agreeable conclusion soon? As things stand, I'm guessing probably not. Progress doesn't occur in the CCW without essentially unanimous consent of, of certainly all the major parties. But if the US and the UK don't want things to move ahead, uh, then they won't move ahead, as far as I can tell. So there are other ways. I was speaking to the former director of the UN in Geneva, um, who said that you know sometimes the CCW is a place where treaties go to die. And if you want progress to happen, then you could go through the UN General Assembly, which really means, as happened with the Landmine Treaty, to create a lot of public pressure. So the Landmine Treaty was brought about through the actions of mainly non-governmental organizations pressuring their government and creating a, a groundswell of public opinion that made it possible to get the General Assembly to, to push on the process. So that may be the way to go. I can't imagine there are very many human beings who like the idea of living in a world where these kinds of weapons are are available in mass quantities. That was reporter Emily Bannum speaking with Stuart Russell. For more on this story, head to nature.com forward slash news. To find out about some slightly friendlier robots, head over to nature.com slash nature, where there's a paper on some adorable little bug-like machines that can quickly learn to walk again after losing a limb. Okay, great. So now robots can kill us and are impervious to injury. I am definitely going to have nightmares. Well, here's something that might cheer you up. The latest instalment of Audiophile, our monthly documentary series on sound science, is here. In this episode, Ewan Calloway is on the hunt for long-lost sounds. Here's a trailer. 
I first came across uh, Richard Woodbridge III um, just searching on the internet. This is Dan Scott. He's a sound artist. If you search the web for ancient or lost sound, as Dan did, you'll come across Woodbridge. He was an engineer, an inventor. In the 1960s, he proposed that sounds could be accidentally recorded onto everyday objects, like pots and paintings. My first reaction was that it was something more from science fiction. The idea is that when someone made a pot, the surrounding sounds were engraved in the wet clay, just like a vinyl recording. The, the first vision I had was that, that you could go into the Victorian Albert Museum, into the, the, their huge galleries of um, ancient pottery, and you could take your stylus and listen to each pot and hear all these different moments in history, and that's just a kind of mind-blowing thought. Audiophile is available to listen to now from the Nature Podcast feed, or catch it at nature.com slash nature slash podcast slash audiophile. That's all from us. For our daily witterings, follow us on Twitter at Climate Adam. And at Minnie Kerry. Tune in next week to find out about Pluto's dysfunctional family of moons. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.